0: This is The Rounds Table. All right, welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. John and I have another episode in store for you today. There isn't really a unifying topic. One study is about a pragmatic trial in UTI treatment, and another is a meta-analysis related to treatment of asthma. So we got no theme, but lots of good content. John, should we just jump in? Yeah, I think so.
1: I'll uh, leave it up to you to see if you can find some inspiring segue between the two sessions, but uh, why don't we get started? Perfect. So what's your article? So first, we're going to talk about a paper called The Effect of 7 versus 14 Days of Antibiotics on Resolution of Symptoms from Afebrile Men with Urinary Tract Infections, a randomized controlled trial. This was published in JAMA of July of this year, and it's by Draconja et al. Cool. What was the research question? Uh, So they wanted to know, is 7 days versus 14 days non-inferior for treatment of urinary tract infections in men who do not have fever?
0: Yeah, sounds like a pretty straightforward and important question, but uh, why did this catch your eye? Yeah, I mean, you and I
1: definitely see urinary sources of infection commonly, and UTIs are one of the commonest reasons for antibiotic prescription. Uh, There's been growing concerns for antimicrobial resistance, for side effects from antibiotics, and as you know, with a few exceptions... Generally speaking, a lot of the evidence shows that shorter durations of antibiotics are as good, if not better, uh, compared to longer duration. And so really, they wanted to know for men who have uh, a urinary source of infection, but they're not having fever. So, you know, not more of a systemically unwell patient. Can we get away with shorter durations of antibiotics?
0: Yeah. And I remember like the old adage when it comes to ID physicians is they pretty much know everything except what antibiotic to use and how long to use it for. Um, And this is not their fault. They, they, you know, they're working in a field that has like a total dearth of randomized trials. But fortunately, that's changing. And here's another one, maybe not answering what to use, but at least how long to use it. Um, So what was the study design here?
1: So this was a double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomized controlled trial. It was done at two VA hospitals in the US. The age of patients were 18 years of age or older. Again, they were all men. They were treated in an outpatient setting. And as mentioned, they had to be a- afebrile. Uh, the initial prescribing physician had to have put them on either Cipro or SEPTRA with a plan to treat them for, you know, at least seven days. And they were randomized to the final duration of antibiotic. People were excluded if they had a recent urinary tract infection in the last 14 days, they had a temperature. And if the organism was not susceptible to Cipro or Ceptra. Uh, now, interestingly, and we'll talk more about this, but urinary cultures are actually not required, but encouraged as part of the study design. And ultimately patients were randomized by day eight to either placebo for seven additional days or to continue, be it Cipro or Septra, whatever they were started on for another seven days. Some of these men did have things like urinary catheters, and so they were also stratified as part of the randomization by things like urinary catheter uh, by the two study sites, as well as by the initial antibiotic that was used. Uh, They looked at a few different outcomes, but the first was the primary outcome looking actually at resolution of initial UTI symptoms by day 14. And and they chose this outcome as it's one of the more common outcomes used in other urinary tract studies. Secondary outcomes included recurrence of symptoms for urinary tract infection after kind of initial resolution. Also looked at things like adverse effects through to day 28 after stopping medications. And uh, this was a non-inferiority design with a 10% margin. And this was actually chosen by uh, expert opinion. They sort of asked a bunch of ID docs what they thought, and that was the number they came up with. And there were a couple of different analyses that were done, sort of an as-treated, as well as um, as as-randomized, but we can talk more about that later on.
0: Yeah, cool. So, I mean, I think it's a pretty, like, beautifully pragmatic study. And when I was digging through the methods, it was interesting because it was like all of these men's were showing up for an appointment. Some of it might have been UTI, some of it might be something else. And then within the actual EMR, the research coordinators could then identify all those who presented for a UTI, you know, confirm they met eligibility, and then reach out to them thereafter for them to be included and then randomized, which I thought was just pretty cool and very pragmatic. It was pretty neat. Yeah, they looked like on a daily basis, they looked to see like, okay, who of
1: the patients are kind of fitting criteria and getting put on these antibiotics and then being approached to be part of the study. So you're right, very kind of uh, pragmatic indeed.
0: Yeah, and the fact that it was placebo controlled is like super impressive and obviously will help uh, in terms of all sorts of biases. But anyway, what did the patients look like who were included? So ultimately, 272
1: patients were randomized, and this was less than the target of 290, but that's because funding ran out, unfortunately. Uh, The median age of patients was about 70 years. 80% 80% were Caucasian, about 40% of men had BPH, about 18% used intermittent catheterization, and 6% had an indwelling catheter. About 40% of the patients had diabetes, about 8% was CKD, and a 4% with spinal cord injury. Um, and... Of the patient population. So ninety-three percent did have a pretreatment urinalysis at least. And then 87.9, let's just say eighty eight percent had a pretreatment urinary culture drawn as well. Um, and so that's kind of what the the groups looked like.
0: Cool. And I know you've already alluded to this. We'll get into it later. But in all honesty, like I don't think all men necessarily need a urine culture to be sent to confirm this is a UTI. But anyway, let's get to the criticisms later. What were the main results here?
1: Yeah, so, you know, based on treatment group, 93% in the seven-day group versus 90% of patients in the 14-day group had resolution of symptoms by 14 days, which did meet their non-inferiority cutoff. And then by randomization, so again, they also looked at just, you know, how were you randomized and what group was that in, similar sort of thing. Uh, By randomization, 92% of men had resolution of their symptoms by day 14 in the seven-day group, and 90% of men had resolution of their symptoms by day 14 in the 14-day group as well, also meeting the non-inferiority cutoff. Recurrence of symptoms actually did not differ between the two groups. And so in the seven day treated group, only about 10% of patients had a recurrence of symptoms. In the 14 day group, about 13% had recurrence of symptoms. And now looking at adverse effects, well, they were kind of similar. I mean, about 20% of patients in the seven day group versus 24% in the 14 day group had some adverse event. The commonest thing was diarrhea. And this was about 9% in both treatment groups. Interestingly, and I wasn't expecting this, but you know, there was no statistically significant difference in C diff rates, but there were two cases of C diff, which made 1% of the population in the seven day group compared to no C diff in the 14 day group. Cause of course that's always the thing I'm afraid of. And then they did do a post hoc analysis where they looked at the differences by treatment group, because as we mentioned, you know, in the treatment group, they got either Cipro or SEPTRA. So they just wanted to sort of flag, you know, among the Cipro among the SEPTRA, was there a difference? And so 94% of those patients getting Cipro versus 87% of those getting Ceptra had resolution of their symptoms by that 14 day point in time.
0: All right, cool. So, I mean, they wanted to see was seven non-inferior to 14 days. They set their margin at 10% and their upper confidence interval didn't include that. So they claim it's not inferior uh, That's pretty impressive to me. What are the limitations from your perspective?
1: Yeah. So, you know, a few just kind of general considerations this was a smaller study, only about 272 men randomized. Now, a couple of things from our perspective, most of the people we're seeing are hospitalized with more of a sepsis presentation. They're systemically unwell. And so, of course, that does not include this patient population. You know, the other thing that is a bit limited here is that uh, there's always this debate about what about beta-lactams? Like, do you truly need to treat people for longer durations? And the theory there is that there's higher failure rates with beta-lactams in your source of infection and, and you know this study didn't ask that question and rightfully so it was because in their patient population at least of patients are given either Cipro or Ceptra as part of their initial treatment when they kind of looked at their study population. But, you know, we can't really comment on other antibiotics. It's really just those two. And then, you know, I do like that this was designed the way that it was. In thinking about this, though, ultimately, some patients who did not have a urinary tract infection got put on antibiotics. And I think that ideally, you know, me as an internist, I love that I can just order tests and get results pretty quickly. And so it would have been nice to see that, yeah, we know that everyone in this population, had a culture confirmed, symptom confirmed urinary tract infection, and then were exposing them to antibiotics. Because, in fact, I think it was something like uh, about 23% of the cultures had no growth. And so those patients were still randomized in the trial.
0: Yeah, it's a good point. I guess like um to your initial point about you know it's Cipro and Ceptra, whereas what about like all their bugs are resistant to everything? So I I don't even think they know what amoxicillin is anymore. Amoxicillin, and other things. Well, you you were nice about it, but it's more so because it's America and like but but you're right. You know it doesn't answer that question. But I bet if we were to do a deep dive in terms of where that belief comes from, I'm sure it's based on like. You know, some ID doctor said it and then every fellow repeated it and then we learned it from them. I know. I don't think it's based on like compelling evidence. No, no, totally. And uh, yeah, it's a good point. You know, some of these individuals actually didn't have disease potentially. Like potentially they didn't have a disease. Of course, urine cultures aren't perfect, but it is a good point. And I guess in this scenario, it would bias to the null, which is relevant when it's a non-inferiority study. Anyway, what's the take home point for you? Well, take home point here is that seven days
1: was non-inferior to 14 days for treatment of a urinary tract infection in men who didn't have fever.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And practice changing for you. Uh, I mean, I think it would be nice to see these
1: results replicated, but you know, when you sort of take a step back and you look at some local guidelines, like, you know, I remember in Toronto, there's great, uh, the antimicrobial stewardship.com out of UHN, uh, Mount Sinai, like their guidelines in this situation also give a bit of a ballpark. I think they say like for Cipro seven days is okay, but for Septra, it's seven to 14 days. And then if we look at our kind of local guidelines, we also have this kind of seven to 14 day time window for both Cipro and SEPTRA. So, I think this is an important question that we still are getting closer to an answer, but perhaps maybe replicate the data, see if it gets incorporated in the guidelines. And then uh, I'll certainly feel more comfortable, though, in someone who's like at a high risk for C. difficile or something like that for maybe considering a shorter duration of treatment in the right clinical setting.
0: Yeah, that's fair. I guess it's so hard because they didn't include people with a fever and you and I are inpatient doctors, so obviously... You know, it's pretty rare for somebody to be hospitalized unless they have a fever and other bad stuff going on. I think I'm more convinced than you are in that if I had somebody who met the inclusion criteria for this, I would say, yep, seven days sounds reasonable as an outpatient. And then a total shameless promotion. I have a sort of five minute video on non-inferiority analyses and how on earth to interpret the margin. So we're going to put a a link to that um, in the show notes. And uh, yeah, maybe people will find it helpful. Maybe they won't. Anyway, uh, that's
1: a good idea. I always have to like pull up this diagram that I've got that reminds me of what does this mean?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's what I tried to distill it down. So, all right, enough about that. We'll, we'll change gears now and, and talk about a uh, next study published in JAMA of uh, May of 2021, uh, triple versus dual inhaler therapy and asthma outcomes in moderate to severe asthma, a systematic review and meta-analysis. Okay,
1: perfect. So what was the research question here?
0: Is adding a long-acting muscarinic antagonist, LAMA, to inhaled corticosteroids, ICS, and long-acting beta-agonist, LABA, associated with differences in clinical outcomes and adverse events among individuals with moderate to severe persistent asthma? A much shorter version of that would be, we're talking triple therapy, LAMA, ICS, LABA, versus dual therapy, ICS plus LABA.
1: Okay, nice. I think there's a lot of reasons why this is important, but what do you think? Why did this catch you?
0: Uh, mainly because I don't often manage people with asthma anymore these days. So I needed a good refresher on what should I be doing? Uh, and this is why this caught my eye. And COPD, for sure, we see that all the time, but like a pure asthma exacerbation and then knowing what to do after they leave hospital, I don't see that um, all that often. So that's why it caught my eye. The introduction sort of um, nicely paints a picture here that asthma is the most common chronic respiratory illness and affects all ages, and it's got all sorts of morbidities and potentially mortalities. So that caught my attention. And then I sort of also wanted to take a maybe one minute um, detour, because it's important to think about the stepwise approach for treating people with asthma. And the first step most often will make the diagnosis. And after you've made the diagnosis. Most people need like a short-acting beta agonist, salbutamol in, in Canada or albuterol um, in the US. And then thereafter, if you're trying to classify them as you know mild, moderate, severe, you really need to take a good history and figure out how many days of the week are these symptoms affecting you. And I'll just jump to sort of the moderate and severe just to paint the picture in the listener's head. So if somebody's had an acute exacerbation recently, They got severe asthma, so for us general internists, you know, the fact that they're being hospitalized, okay, you know, they got severe asthma, Uh, and then a moderate asthma. We're talking about you know asthma symptoms occurring most days of the week. They might be waking up in the middle of the night, you know, at least uh, once a month, and they might have other risk factors for exacerbations. So within this moderate, more moderate to severe group, the question is really is triple therapy going to be helpful most of the guidelines are very vague about this okay perfect so how was the study done yeah so um this was a you know a good old-fashioned systematic review and, and meta-analysis just to i guess hit the listener over the head with the comparison here we're talking triple therapy ics LABA LAMA versus dual therapy which appears to be the sort of current quote-unquote standard uh, of ics plus lava so They wanted to find randomized trials um, that compared this triple versus dual. After identifying these randomized trials, um, they had two independent reviewers who extracted the data from the studies and then also assessed the risk of bias. They analyzed it using uh, random effects meta-analysis, which is a go-to approach, and also assessed the certainty of the evidence using something called the GRADE approach. And the main outcomes they're looking at here were severe exacerbations asthma control as reported by the patient quality of life mortality and adverse events
1: okay so a meta-analysis uh, made up of randomized control trials looking at triple therapy versus ics and LABA. so who are these
0: people? What do they look like? So they identified um six hundred and eighty some odd potential articles and then whittled it down to twenty randomized controlled trials, which include twelve thousand individuals, both kids and adults, the mean age in the fifties, fifty eight percent women. Some studies had, you know, 100% of patients with a a prior smoking history, and for other studies, closer to 20%. The sample size of the studies ranged from uh, 17 to uh, 3,000. So there was a big spread between the sort of largest studies and the smallest studies here.
1: Trial 17, yeah, that's nice and small. But hey, anyways, uh, what was the main result?
0: Yeah. Main result. I'm going to jump into that. But before I do, and we'll have to include this in the show notes as well, is there's like this beautiful picture and I should give credit where credit's due. This is from the Lung Foundation in Australia, which just sort of shows you a picture of the labas versus llamas, you know, what the actual puffer looks like. So for anyone who's still like, ooh, you know, what's an example of a lava versus a llama? So a llama would be something like Spireva and I should actually give the actual components so people don't criticize us of being in bed with pharma. Spireva, here we go. Uh, of course, I should know that. Long-acting tyotropium, um, other things like c um glycopyrium bromide, eumiclidinium, or incruz. So those are the fancy new llamas, whereas the labas would be like um, salmeterol or indacaterol. So anyway, quick detour, but... Um, back to answering your questions. So the main results. So essentially, there was high certainty evidence showing that triple therapy, you know, was significantly associated with a reduction in severe exacerbation risk. We're talking like 22% in the triple therapy compared to 27% in the dual therapy. So that's like a 5% absolute reduction. And from a relative risk, it's sort of like a 20% relative risk reduction. They also saw improvement in asthma control. I won't get into how they did this, but essentially it was based on self-reported symptoms and they used this sort of appropriate standardized mean difference using a cutoff that's previously been shown to be like clinically relevant. So like what matters to the patient um, they didn't show any change in quality of life or self-reported quality of life and no difference in mortality so those are sort of the benefits they also looked at the adverse events so they did see that with triple therapy it was associated with more adverse events such as dry mouth dysphonia and sort of like a maybe a 1% absolute risk increase, and on a relative scale, like a 60% increased relative risk. Having said that, treatment-related and serious adverse events were not significantly different between the two groups, and that's with moderate certainty evidence.
1: So a 5% reduction uh, in absolute risk seems pretty important with regards to triple therapy. Before we get into that, uh, what do you think some of the important limitations are?
0: yeah so you know if it was a five percent reduction in like mortality i'd say holy crow this is a game changer or like a five percent reduction in going to the icu same thing one of the biggest issues here is that not all of the clinical trials use the same composite outcome and that's just to be expected that's a limitation with all meta-analyses you know you can only work with the data and the outcomes you're given there's no work around there so it's a composite outcome and in some studies that included being hospitalized. In other ones, that's going to the eMERGE. In other ones, that's many days of requiring steroid treatment. So obviously, those don't have the same sort of clinical importance. So that's one a definite limitation. Another limitation is that for me, as a general internist, I'm still trying to wrap my head around, okay, what about biologics? And like, when should those be used? Of course, this wasn't the scope of um, their meta-analysis. And the way they sort of framed it as triple therapy might provide the opportunity to sort of delay or maybe even negate the need for more uh, systemic therapy, which I thought was interesting and was a useful pearl for me to learn from the article. So I guess the main limitations here are primary outcome and the fact that it's still a composite, and then the usual limitations with meta-analyses. You know, they're not randomized trials. It's an observational study of the available literature, in this case, clinical trials. Okay. Uh, What do you think the take-home is? Yeah, I think the take-home here is that there's pretty darn good evidence for triple therapy in patients who have moderate to severe asthma. And certainly it's something that um, I think is important for us as general internists to be aware of, because when we're seeing the patient, they're probably in the hospital with an exacerbation. So that's the sort of cue to us that, okay, we probably need to add on a puffer um, if they're not already on triple therapy so i think that's a take-home point for me on this one
1: yeah i think that sounds pretty reasonable and i think you kind of already addressed this as whether or not this is practice changing or not but i think it, it's kind of a reminder in those times where we are seeing the hospitalized asthma exacerbation take a look at their puffers and on are they on optimal therapy um, and maybe there is a way to to optimize them further if they're being admitted yeah,
0: totally agree. Okay, and now the final part of the show, uh, the good stuff. So, John, what's some positive stuff uh, that's caught your eye recently? Uh,
1: well, this is kind of old news now, but the Olympics just finished up. The Paralympics are just starting as we speak. But uh, this made the news during the high jump competition. Uh, two uh, athletes were kind of in the finals for the high jump. They would actually trained together. It sounds like they were kind of buddies. And um, they both kind of got the highest jump. And they were offered, you know, the guy asked, like, well, can we both get the gold medal instead of continuing to compete against one another for like ongoing higher, uh, higher jumps. And anyways, uh, the Olympics said, yeah, we can both give you a gold medal. So it was just this really nice heartwarming scene when two guys who had worked really hard to get as far as they've gotten in their sport, uh, kind of shared in the glory. So it's, a, it's a really great story.
0: Nice. Sounds like a couple of Canadians, but I don't think Canadians are known for their high jumping skills
1: no not canadians in this situation yeah
0: so what about you mike what'd you find fair mine's more related to like um machine learning ai type of stuff i've been amazed as i learned more about how well these self-driving cars work and you know like human drivers are totally fallible and i'm sure machines are as well but at least with the machine like you know, it's at peak performance at all all points in time. And there is an incredible collection of videos now of people who were driving their Tesla or there was a Tesla on the road and it was gonna be like a near collision, but the self-driving Tesla knew it, sensed it, and then redirected the direction of the car moments before the crash. <laughs> so it's like, whoa, the robots have come and like they're taking care of us, so anyway. I'll include the link.
1: Nice. The future is here.
0: Yeah, totally. Not for medicine, but but <laughs> but for big business it seems like they've, uh,
1: you know, we got the uh, we talked about AI and uh, reading ECGs and stuff and uh, chest x-rays, so we're getting there.
0: Fair, fair. We have some like case we have some case reports whereas, you know, these companies are pumping out like, you know, randomized trials, New England Journal quality stuff. But anyway, all right, John. Well, I think that's all we have for this week. Uh thanks so much and we'll chat again soon.
1: Yeah, talk to you soon. Take care. The Rounds Table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Roundstable. Special thanks to our audio editor, Emilio Garcia-Flores. Also thanks to founder of the Rounds Table, Amol Verma, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, the editor-in-chief at Healthy Debate, for all of the support.